You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On November 25th, Queen's University announced that one of its neurosurgeons, Dr. Teresa Persner, has been named one of Canada's top 40 under 40, an annual leadership award that recognizes exceptional achievement by 40 outstanding Canadians who are under the age of 40 years. With us today to talk about her research achievements is Dr. Teresa Persner of the Department of Neurosurgery and an attending physician at the Kingston Health Sciences Center. Welcome, Teresa. Hi, thanks for having me. It's very it's very exciting to be here. <laughs> it's really exciting to have you here. Congratulations on your uh, recent recognition as a top 40 under 40 Canadian. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, it was very, uh, it was very unexpected and a little overwhelming. And, you know, the, the love and response I've gotten from Queens and, and, you know, the community in Kingston as a whole has been very, uh, yeah, very overwhelming, I think is the right word. <laughs> so what was your response when you first learned you were nominated for this achievement and, uh, and, and then earning it? Yeah, so I think I think nominated. It kind of came out of nowhere. Um, it was a few of my old colleagues actually that that put in the nomination. And so, so when I got an email saying you've been nominated for this, I thought, oh wow, that that's that's unexpected. <laughs> um, but but I sort of come to terms with the idea that the nomination itself was was such an honor. Um, it never occurred to me that I would then go on to to win the award. So I think this year was especially competitive because they didn't have one last year. So there was even more nominees this year. I think they said over 1200 or something. So, wow. um, yeah. So when you feel that your odds are one in 12, 12, uh, one in 1200, you're, <laughs> you're not going to bed at night, you know, <laughs> hoping to be that, you know, that, that one in 1200. So when I finally got the call and I got the call actually a, a week before the announcement was made or so, um, I was just a little bit dumbfounded. I was actually playing with my kids and I, I saw, you know, a call from an unknown caller and I just ignored it, assuming it was, you know, some nonsense. And, and they called back again. So I thought, okay, I should probably answer this. And, and they told me the good news. And I, I sat there a little bit dumbfounded for a second. Uh, but, but yeah, now that it's settled in, it's, it's, it's quite a joyous occasion. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. So, Teresa, tell us a little bit more about your research and teaching in the area of pediatric brain development and treatment of uh, childhood medulloblastoma here at Queen's and Kingston Health Sciences Center. Yeah, so I've, I've always been um, really fascinated by, by the brain. I think it's, mm-hmm. I actually remember, I don't have a very good memory, unfortunately, but <laughs> I actually <laughs> I actually remember very clearly um, the first time I read about the brain in, in high school I, in a textbook and just thinking, oh, this is, this is much more interesting than anything I've learned, I've learned before. And so I think one of the most fascinating things about the brain is how it develops, how from just two half cells coming together at one point, um, everything is is on autopilot to create this unbelievably complicated amazing structure which is the brain and uh you know the brain's not just this gelatinous structure i get to operate on it it's it really is everything about you so your your memories and your feelings your personality all of it is in this structure and to me it's always been unbelievable that's even possible um and so brain development something that's always fascinated uh, me and and something that's really interesting um is that 
pediatric brain tumors, unlike adult brain tumors, um, uh, some of them at least are a reflection of normal brain development gone wrong. Um, so mm-hmm. it reflects a, a period, a, a place in the brain that grows as it normally should in development. Instead of stopping when it should stop, it just keeps growing from a, a mutation. Um, and then you end up getting this, this brain tumor. And so for me, you know, how that happens, how does that region normally grow? Why does it normally stop? And why does it fail to stop in, in these particular uh, patients was, was just a, a fascinating question that if I could answer effectively, could have, uh, you know, very big therapeutic implications. And so that's sort of how I ended up, up in that field, um, sort of a marriage between really interesting science and, and really a really important problem for, for children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day, Teresa. So you are a practicing physician. You're a, you're a neurosurgeon, <laughs> uh, but you're also um, an instructor, a professor at Queen's. And, uh, and you, of course, have privileges at the hospital, too. So uh, I, I see some research. I see some teaching and clinical work here, too. How do you balance it all? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit nuts. So, so one of the reasons I came to Queen's, actually, was because it, it's very unique in that uh, the jobs that were offered us, they were neurosurgeon jobs with the salary that comes with that, but they really give you 50% dedicated time. So I have two weeks where I'm on clinical neurosurgery and then two weeks where I don't have clinical duties. My duties are research oriented. And so a lot of places tell you they're going to give you that, but your clinical duties end up just spilling into your research time and you really end up with very little research time. Um, but here at Queens, my, my husband's also a neurosurgeon here. <laughs> so, so, so with these jobs, we're actually able to take two weeks of clinical where I take over all of his patients. And then I have two weeks of dedicated research time where my husband takes over all of my patients. And so it, it's ended up being amazing. Um, a typical day is, is crazy. I, I wake, I have three kids. They're seven, five, and three. So three little guys, all of them <laughs> in school. <laughs> So it's, it's, a, it's a Russell bustle morning, like, like anyone trying to get all the lunches together, you know, drop them up, you know, come, come to, come to work. If it's a clinical day, it's usually seeing the patients heading to the OR, um, seeing them again at the end of the day and, you know, doing all the paperwork. If, if it's a research uh, week, I usually have back-to-back meetings. Um, I'm, all my work has always been extremely uh, interdisciplinary and collaborative. So a lot of it is just organizing very, very smart people um, and and getting them to work together in the right way. (laughs) So so there's that. And then, uh, you know, in the background, I have this this baby food company, Cerebelli. And so it it was supposed to be a bit of a a little passion project. Um, It really came from a need to to give other parents um, access to the information that that I use to, to figure out what to feed my kid in the first three years to help their healthy brain development. Um, so this was this little project, but it's now, you know, in Target and Wegmans and Whole Foods and everywhere down in the States. I think we're at 7,000 stores or something at this point. So, so there's also that going on in the background. So it's, it's a lot of multitasking. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like I, I've been able to be really present for my kids. I, I get mm-hmm. to pop them off. I get to pick them up. And that has been um, one of the great privileges of, of being here at Queens, I think. Amazing. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about Cerebelli, the baby food <laughs> brand that you co-founded in 2018. Uh, you you touched on it just a, a bit a couple of moments ago in reference to, uh, you know, wanting to ensure what your children are eating is good for uh, good, wholesome brain development for <laughs> small children. Uh, how did you get involved in in thinking about and then actually launching the research and development of a whole baby food brand? Yeah, that's that, like that's that's completely uh, in a completely different field, yeah, really, than it, what it is you do on the day to day. 
so unexpected and and something yeah. if you had asked me even four years ago you know any any is there any universe where you're going to be you know starting a baby food company and target talking to you know whole foods and target and stuff i would have told you that there's no shot and you've really sort of you, you've really misinterpreted me as someone that i'm not but it, it really came from you know having having my own kids so i i had my my first kid and I think like most moms, I just want to give them every opportunity in the world. And, and knowing what I know about early development, it seemed like the one thing I really had to get right in the first three years was their early brain development, because most of your brain development in terms of by the time you're age of three, you have pretty much all the neurons you're going to have of your life, right? That's the one right. window in your life where you make neurons. The rest of your body turns over all the time, but your brain, that, that's what you got. <laughs> and so I felt like everything else I could mess up and come back and fix, <laughs> but the brain, <laughs> I had this one shot. And so I, I started really reading about, you know, what's important. And there's, there's really three major variables that go into how a kid's develop, kid's brain develops. Um, the first is genetics. So the parents, it's a huge variable. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second is the environment. So how you interact with the child, um, you know, the right books, the right toys, the right way of speaking this and that. And then the third was nutrition. And, and I found of the, of the three, the third, I really knew nothing about, I'm certainly not a nutritionist. Um, and so I started reading and reading and reading about it. And the more I read, the more I realized, oh my goodness, this is actually, this is real. <laughs> There's actually really good data showing that specific parts of the brain um, are dependent on specific nutrients to grow optimally. And so mm -hmm. um, I started thinking, okay, what, what's, what part of the brain is growing at this time? What nutrients does it need? And how do I make sure my kid gets it? And so I just did that month by month, all the way up until they were three years old. Um, and so I, I started making this baby food for them. Um, I tried to buy it at the grocery store because I have no time, but but there were 16 nutrients. And of those nutrients, I could only find two or three at the grocery store. So I was stuck making it myself, which I didn't have time to do. Um, and then really, I, I think that's, I always say that's where the story would have ended. But my brother, who's the co-founder, had his kid at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, his wife is amazing. She's a super mom. And so she started asking me, you know, what should I cook? I started telling her. And then ultimately my brother said, you know, Teresa, we really have to make this more available to, to more people. Um, and at first, uh, <laughs> my first reaction was no, <laughs> I don't have time for that. Like my research interest is brain development and pediatric brain cancer. It's not baby food. Right. And so it was, <laughs> it was a hard no. Um, but big brothers know how to convince little sisters to do what they want. And so <laughs> after a lot of pushing and pulling, and then, you know, ultimately, thinking about it and thinking, you know, what a privileged position I am in having this knowledge and being able to share it and having resources to actually make it shareable on a, on a large scale. I thought, you know, how do you, how, how do you ethically just walk away from that, knowing that no one else is going to do it if you don't do it. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of how I got <laughs> pulled into Cerebelli. And, and now I'm, I'm really glad I have, because it's been a, I got to work with amazing people. Our team is just unbelievable. They're very different from any types of people I've worked with before. They're not healthcare people, they're entrepreneurs and, you know, marketing people and all this. And so um, it's, it's been a cool experience, but it certainly, it certainly wasn't anything I expected to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a story. Thank you for sharing. Now let's hear more too from you, Teresa, about your efforts to build uh, new translational research programs here at the university. What are you envisioning and what will be the impact? Do you think? Yeah, I'm really excited about what's, what's available here. I mean, there, there's so much upside to, to what we can do and, well, one thing I wasn't sure, I, I'm always very, um, I like to approach a new situation with a lot of humility, assuming that there's a lot of really intelligent people 
And um, if something hasn't been done yet, usually there's usually a good reason. It's not because they're just waiting for you to come and be the savior that makes everything better, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so and so I came here and what I was so, so happy to see was exactly that, that there is extremely intelligent people working in all different fields. And um, the world of neuro-oncology at Queens can, can have such a great collaborative environment to provide um, an experience for the patient that that is really um, holistic and, and really mm-hmm. with, with uh, great communication from the beginning to the end. Um, and, and so that's something I'm, I'm trying to work on is, is creating a, a slightly more organized approach, uh, a more collaborative multidisciplinary approach to, to neuro-oncology. Um, and with that comes a lot of opportunities. So, so things like clinical trials, um, you know, bringing trials to Queens in neuro-oncology that maybe we haven't had access to always before now. Um, so there's a few trials I'm hoping to bring um, in, in 2022. Um, that's much earlier than I thought. I had kind of had a five-year plan where by the end of the five years, I'd start introducing clinical trials to, to Queens at, for, for neuro-oncology. Um, but I've just had such amazing enthusiasm from um, across the board, basically, at Queens. <laughs> From the radiation on yeah, from the radiation oncologists, like all the way up to the top of the ladder, and I'm I, I'm thinking as early as next year we'll already get started. So um, everything's been going much faster than I thought, and and I I think that's fully because of the incredible collaborative spirit here and, and the incredible talent and the number of people who are willing to put up with someone like me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So before we close, do you have any words of advice for student listeners out there who are thinking about careers in medicine? Yeah, I think that you should do exactly what makes the most sense for you. And I think the best thing you can do for yourself from a very early stage is put a lot of thought into exactly what you want for you, not what people expect of you, not what society expects of you, but specifically what gets you excited where do you think your strengths are and, and what wakes you up in the morning, happy to be awake, even if it's, you know, 530 in the morning, which is where neurosurgery starts. So um, really figure out what, what you love in life and then go for it. And, and even if it's an unusual pathway, even if it takes you places that everyone is telling you is crazy, if it makes sense for you and you're being honest with yourself, then, then just go for it anyway. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but overall it's a really fun and and, and, uh, exciting adventure. (laughs) Fantastic. Folks, we have been chatting with Dr. Teresa Persner, who has been recently named as one of Canada's top 40 under 40 for her uh, exceptional research and and teaching and and entrepreneurship (laughs) amongst all the many other responsibilities, including parenthood (laughs) going on in, in, in her life. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us here today on Campus Beat. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Campus Beat. So on November 24th, Queen's University announced that one of its recent graduates from the Commerce Program, Ms. Jane Hutchings, has been selected as a 2022 Rhodes Scholar, earning this prestigious scholarship to the University of Oxford worth more than $100,000, covering postgraduate study costs, including tuition, fees, and living expenses. And with us today to chat about this outstanding achievement is Jane Hutchings herself. Welcome to Campus Beat, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. 
Ah, wow. So huge, huge accomplishment. Congratulations. How are you feeling about it? I'm honestly pretty overcome with emotion still. Um, I found out the exciting news on Friday, but I think it's still pretty surreal and I'm still kind of soaking it all in. And I don't know if it'll feel real until I step foot on campus in September. So yeah, I'm just kind of taking it all in. What are your parents thinking? Oh, I think they were overcome with emotions. I FaceTimed them immediately after and they both just filled up with tears and then I started filling up with tears and it was a happy cry. So I think everybody is super excited. Oh, and I'm I'm excited for you. As I'm sure many of our listeners are too. This is this is huge. Wow. Okay, so Jane, tell us a little bit about your time at Queens in the Commerce program, and and maybe a little bit about some of the leadership endeavors that you that you had taken up during your time at Queens. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm originally from St. John's, Newfoundland. So when I stepped foot on campus in my first year at Queens, um, it was definitely a brand new landscape, but I was really determined to kind of make an impact on both, you know, the Kingston community as well as the international community. So within my first year, two years, I got involved with the Queens Commerce Service Initiative, um, which was a club within the Smith Commerce Society that basically focused on economic um, development initiatives within South America. So Mm -hmm. during winter reading break, we were able to um, embark on two trips. So one to Guatemala and one to Costa Rica. Um, mm-hmm. It was a really amazing experience um, because I'm definitely interested in understanding you know, rural development and how we can make that more sustainable. So being able to kind of see that on a national scale uh, or international scale was very eye-opening. Um, and then I also was involved within the Smith Commerce Society, um, serving on um, the society of being an advisory director um, for the audit stream, as well as working as an outreach officer, um, which was able to plan a holiday hope, which was a really exciting event that brought together uh, a large amount of the Smith Commerce Society to basically um, uh, fundraise money and also give gifts um, to less fortunate children within the Kingston community. Um, So yeah, it was a really great opportunity to kind of be involved with um, a vast amount of clubs and committees and meet great people along the way. Outstanding. So now moving to the Rhodes Scholarship itself, what motivated you to apply? I think that it was kind of something that I heard about when I was in high school back in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I think it was kind of one of those long goals that was always in the back of my mind. And then when I uh, got into third year, I started to think, okay, you know, once I graduate from my commerce degree, like, what do I kind of want to accomplish next? Um, And that's kind of when that long goal kind of said, you know what, it's getting closer. Like, you know, maybe it's time for me to, you know, take a stab at it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of when I started to become um, interested in. And it was a really good just reflective process in all itself, because, um, you know, it is quite rigorous in terms of all the requirements and the writing that goes into it and getting your references. So it was a really cool opportunity to just engage in reflection of, you know, everything that I had kind of done over the past, you know, three or four years, Um, you know, the wonderful professors and students that I was able to work with. And then, yeah, kind of try to express my story in the most truthful and authentic way to me. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And now for current students who might be listening in, what does, what did the application process actually entail and how might they apply? And importantly too, because you talked about how you were thinking about the long game, even when you were still in high school in Newfoundland, what should students think about in terms of preparation in advance of their own applications for the Rhodes Scholarship and otherwise? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely think um, like 
anything, just make sure that, you know, all your involvement in everything that you do is just really focusing on things that you're passionate about. Um, I think kind of the beauty of the Rhodes Scholarship is that really, you know, anybody who is passionate about anything, you know, has commitment to service, commitment to others, um, you know, is a leader within their community, um, you know, looks out for, you know, your fellow human beings. Um, you know, those are just all characteristics that they look for and they can come in any shape, size or form. Um, so I just recommend that, you know, anybody that's interested in applying um, to just really make sure that you follow your passions. And, you know, I think Queen's University is a great place for that because there's so many opportunities between clubs and committees um, within the Kingston community, um, you know, with your professors, your students. So I just recommend, yeah, to kind of make sure that you just find something, become extremely dedicated to it. And um, that will give you something great to write about and really authentically tell your story. Amazing. And now uh, I'd like to dig a little deeper into your own uh, areas of interest, particularly your research in Newfoundland. In addition to the work you've done organizing service trips to Central America, which you touched on earlier, um, for fellow students engaging in community growth and economic development projects. Uh, tell us more about those research interests. Where did they, where did they come from? Yeah, so um, I was, you know, afforded the opportunity to attend um, the Smith School of Business on the DNR Sobe Atlantic Scholarship, um, which was um, started by Donald and Rob Sobe, who are very prominent um, business and community people back in Atlantic Canada. Um, so, you know, they always used to tell us that no matter what you do or what you say, like do it as a proud Atlantic Canadian. Um, so I always knew that I kind of wanted to create a linkage between, um, you know, my place of education and I, my place of home. So I remember in um, the end of third year, I reached out to a professor, Dr. Tina Dakin, um, and I knew that she was involved in community custodian research projects. And I kind of said, you know, like, I'm really interested in getting involved. Um, and I'd heard that she kind of had a Newfoundland Labrador project on the go. Um, so I kind of just expressed my interest. And then um, she was very great, gracefully took me on to the project. And then, yeah, I was basically able to start to, it was in the COVID environment. So it took place virtually through um, different interviews. Um, with different custodians of the community. And yeah, it was kind of a very, um, you know, reinforcing opportunity that just kind of, you know, reignited this long lived passion that I always had to make that connection. Um, and it kind of reaffirmed kind of what research and opportunities that I want to go into in the future. All right. And now speaking of the future, what are you going to actually be studying at Oxford University? And how will you build on your past work? Absolutely. So right now I'm kind of interested in the realm of, you know, public policy or diplomatic studies. Um, I think that um, right now I'm planning to pursue um, two one-year masters. Um, so the first masters I think would be involved in something like diplomatic studies or public policy and international relations, because mm -hmm. I'm really interested in basically learning, um, you know, how to communicate and interact with different countries, nations, municipalities, um, particularly in the realm of, um, you know, economic um, diplomacy, looking at international trade and relations. So kind of looking at something on a more national scale um, with a career potentially in Global Affairs Canada. And then secondly, I kind of wanted to peer that with um, continuing to evolve and grow my skills in terms of uh, economics and finance. So potentially a master's in financial and uh, economics, which can really help, you know, complex uh, financial problem solving and skills and, you know, being able to work with people and professors from all across the world to solve some of the largest financial um, issues that we're currently facing. Wow. Wow. So dream job. 
what do you hope to have? What do you hope to do once your your master's degrees at uh, Oxford are complete? So I think it's kind of a two-tiered dream job. I think that, first of all, I definitely would want to maybe eventually serve on the United Nations in some capacity around um, economic development, sustainability, resilience. Um, so basically being able to use my experience on the local level within Newfoundland and Labrador, but then also seeing how, you know, there's similar experiences from countries all around the world. And then secondly, I would love to serve as an elected official in some sort of capacity for Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so I'd say those would be my two two overarching long stretch goals that hopefully one day will become a reality. Aim high, girl. Aim high. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic endeavors ahead of you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane. Folks, we have been chatting with Ms. Jane Hutchings, who has been selected just recently as the 2022 Rhodes Scholar from Queen's University, heading to Oxford University this fall. Congratulations, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.